Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 201 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We, we made, made it. it. We made it. We're a podcast of science. And comedy. And ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. I'm Greg Wah. And we're going to talk all about our shenanigans. But firstly, we've got a fascinating interview with an amazing scientist. For most of our interviewees, I know exactly what they're going to be talking about. I'm, I may not understand it. That's why we have them on the podcast. But I'm pretty certain I know what I'm going to get. And when I first met our next interviewee... Me too. Me too. I, me, I, I know as well. I'm when quite I first smart. Met, you're very smart, Dan. And when I first met our interviewee, I was like, oh, he's a physicist. I understand physics. This is great. I'm sure he knows a lot more about it than I do, but I'll be able to understand it and know where it's all coming from. But then he what? dropped... A bombshell on me. I had to stop and go, no, no, what? No, hang on, hang on. I need to interview you. Ravi oh. Jaiswar from the International Center for Radio Astronomy Research. Hello. <laughs> so, Ravi, you are a physicist, yes? Yes, I'm studying astrophysics at uh, the Institute of Radio Astronomy at University of Western Australia. I've been the second year of my PhD, and I'm currently looking at galaxies uh, above redshift uh, Four and also those in well into the past. In- Wait, a so- galaxy who's going through redshift four, does that mean it's going away from us? Well, um, yeah, so all the galaxies are expanding away from us. Oh, uh, so there are no, there's a blue shifting. <laughs> well, Andromeda is because it's coming yes. towards us, but so, really so, blue shifting. so some are coming towards us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, galaxies that are within a range such that their gravitational pull is a significant factor, those ones can be considered to blue shift towards each other. But galaxies that are so far away that there is a significant delay between when they emitted the light and when we received it, um, those are moving toward us in any uh, meaningful sense. When we talk about redshift redshift four, these are massive distances. Can we talk about stupid distances? We're talking billions of light years away, aren't we? Like really yeah. big, crazy distances away. Yeah, so the majority of the galaxies that I'm looking at um, existed more than 11 billion years ago. So their light has traveled for 11 billion years to come to us, where I pick it up in the telescope and get to look at it. It's mad. And the universe is only like 13.8 billion years old. These are these are like early, early galaxies, like right at yeah. the start. Yeah, yeah, that's the premise of the project, is to look at some of the first galaxies that formed. And... I'm just going to be real mean here. I don't care about any of this. So <laughs> this is not why I invited Ravi on the podcast. No offense to all our galactic experts out there learning about baby galaxies. That's cool. I understand it. There's something else I need to talk to you about, Ravi. And we have talked to Professor Peter Quinn in the past about dark matter and about what it might be and all the information about that. Our mm-hmm. listeners know a little bit about dark matter if they've listened to that podcast. And you have done something with dark matter, which kind of blew my mind. So can you please explain what your team did? Yeah, the research Uh, that we conducted was a kind of concept to understand whether we can create a directional particle detector using DNA. Uh, And um, Hang on, hang on, hang on. (laughs) But how do you... Well, like an ear? Like an ear is made of DNA. 
like a big ear. Yeah, so... <laughs> I just want to uh, just point out, what you've just said then is, you want to detect particles of dark matter using DNA. That's... I, I haven't had yeah, a stroke. I, I, That's okay. what you said. So, so dark matter is up there. And DNA is down here. Like, there's not a lot of DNA that's out off Earth. Uh, like, I think I'm I'm fairly confident in saying there's <laughs> not much DNA that's not on Earth. There's a I think there's a dead dog's in a rocket somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> wow, a duck. Yeah, yeah. There's a little bit, like a, yep. a big rock smashed into Earth and knocked a bunch of dinosaur DNA off, and it's probably floating around in an asteroid belt somewhere as well. But it's all fairly local. Whereas dark matter, I think we were it was explained to us, is mostly out there. If it was down here, we'd be able to probably be able to track it down. Yeah, so like, a lot of dark matter exists in the dark matter halo, which is a description uh, of I guess, the, the mass distribution of the dark matter around the galaxy. So what that means is the galaxy is kind of encapsulated in this uh, dark matter sphere, I guess, that we pass through. It's, it's similar to how the ether was treated in like, the... 1800s, they didn't understand how light was able to transmit without a medium through space. So we treat dark matter in a similar sense, where we are passing through this, I guess, medium of dark matter particles. So just to double check at this point, ether's not a real thing though, right? <laughs> no, the ether is not real. Right, um, okay, okay, that's... We're yeah. on the same page. But the dark matter is like a big halo, and what, depending on what it might be, it may be in the room with us, and it could be, we just, because it doesn't interact with matter in any way, except gravitationally, we wouldn't know. Like, it's, it's diffuse. It's like, it's all fluffy. We don't, we don't know really what it is. So it's kind of like, it's out there somewhere. Or maybe it's in the room. It's behind you. But we're getting well off track at this point, I think. I think, I think. Oh, the no, dark no, matter no. This is, something- is, this is the target. Now all we need to do is figure out what the weapon is. And <laughs> Good point. So we're and, looking for dark how matter. they interact. Good point. And so, then your team of students went, I know, DNA. That's the obvious answer for detecting. What else can, how can DNA be used to detect dark matter, even though we don't know what dark matter is? Like, what? what, what? <laughs> right. Okay. There are many theories to, like, what dark matter is, and many uh, theories have been able to be rejected if it doesn't fit certain criteria. Um, one of the theories that is, I guess, one that hasn't been ruled out are the weakly interacting massive particles. So these are particles that have mass and therefore they interact gravitationally, but they're uh, weakly interacting. So their uh, interaction with the matter that we're used to seeing every day is just very, very unlikely. So the concept of this detector is to make one that is so very sensitive that you would be able to detect an interaction with a weakly interacting massive particle. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. So, so why why I, DNA then? Yeah. I um, think it would help if I described kind of structure of this detector. Ooh. So because it is not only DNA, there is also a crystalline gold nanosheet that is involved as well. And then there is like some magnetic particles at the bottom of it. But the way that uh, this works is you start off with a one atom thick layer of a gold nanosheet. Mm-hmm. And from it, you dangle a bunch of DNA. And you have sequenced this DNA. It's, it's kind of shaped like a jellyfish, if you think about it. It's like a, a top layer with all of these dangly bits underneath it. And uh, the dangly bits are equally spaced out. This, in the simulations that I was doing, this was a single strand of DNA. So DNA is normally a double helix structure, but you can just rip it apart and then you get a single strand. And what you do is 
uh, they are hanging off this uh, nano sheet. What you have is surface uh, at the top, which is supposed to be the part which interacts with the dark matter. So the it, reason uh, we use gold is that it is unlikely for it to chemically uh, interact with things around it. It's, it's, it's quite Yes, it is inert. And you are able to form a single sheet of it that's quite crystalline. The point of the gold as well is not just that it's inert, it's also that um, it is quite a large particle. So the, the atom of gold is fairly massive. And if you have something that's more dense and more massive, then you are more likely to interact with another particle. So you're trying to use something at the top that is likely to interact with the dark matter and hope that in this interaction, the dark matter is able to dislodge one of the atoms of gold. And that atom of gold is then able to traverse through this array of DNA underneath it, hopefully um, severing the DNA at different points that can be measured. Oh, so, so it's kind of like knocking a billiard ball yeah. and then measuring what's been destroyed by the billiard ball. Yes, exactly. So you would collect the severed DNA strands at the bottom. And then one so, of the points of using the DNA other than it's like it's really cheap to get DNA, um, is that... I'm making it for free right now. <laughs> uh, you can choose the sequence of the DNA, and it is really easy to do like a PCR uh, test in a lab and determine where it was cut off. By determining the positions on all these DNA strands of where they were cut off, you can determine not only the amount uh, of energy that this particle had, if it was having an elastic collision with the gold, an elastic collision meaning one where the energy is conserved, you can determine how much energy that initial particle would have had, but you can also determine the direction it was traveling in. That's very important because this detector is very, very sensitive, as I described, which means many other particles could interact with it. You would only want the particles that are coming from the direction that we would expect dark matter to come from. That direction is based on the fact that as we are moving through the halo, the dark matter halo, we are presumably washing ourselves with these dark matter weakly interacting massive particles, and they would therefore be coming from a particular direction. It's kind of like the ether. Yeah, the experiments that confirm whether or not the ether was real were based on directionality. So as the Earth passes through the ether, we would expect light to travel differently along one axis. If you're so, treating this dark matter halo like an ether, then we would expect the dark matter to be coming from one direction. So we can test the directionality of this interaction as well with this type of detector. You, if you found a signal with this device, to, and, okay, we found a signal. If we point it in the other direction, we should get no signal or very weak signal. Theoretically, point. we're getting many signals with this detector. The uh, point is to eliminate the other interaction sources. So every other particle is basically more likely to interact with the gold than dark matter because the whole point is that it's weakly interacting. So you could get neutrinos or muons just interacting with it, and they would be coming from any direction, really. The muons would be coming from whichever direction the sun is coming from. The neutrinos just kind of do their thing. So you could measure the DNA and, like, great big swathes of, like, pow, boof, and you're like, yeah, no, that's muons, those things. And so what you're looking for is the least... Imagine if it was an upside-down field of wheat, like the, the giant blast of that looks like the Tunguska thing. That's that, muons, and you're looking for a bit of wheat that's like a little bit knocked over. And you're like, oh, that, that'd be it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so, yeah. Well then, Dan, look at you, Dan. <laughs> it, it's like looking for this slightly shorter stick of hay in a haystack that is on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're correct. It is like one of the less likely particles. It is, it is very unlikely for this particle to interact, which is why this had to be so sensitive in the first place. 
the uh, hope is that it doesn't just interact with one DNA strand, it cuts through a number of them, and then we can hopefully derive a bit more information about how much energy it had. And that also so, gives you direction as well then, because if you say it was this strand at this height and this strand at this height and this strand at this height, lower and lower, you yeah. can then say it came in at this angle. Yeah, exactly. So you're dangling all these DNA threads. How do you untangle a double helix of DNA? Because I can't, I, I can't even get the back off stickers. <laughs> um, I was not involved in that part of the process, I will be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can make synthetic strands of DNA just oh. in a lab where you can just order them and they come to you. Does oh. that make you a god? <laughs> I, like making your making your own DNA. I thought that Dan, would be Dan, really. Dan, don't don't ask the physicist if he's a god, please. That's not... <laughs> they, they've already got a high opinion of themselves. <laughs> the DNA just just order it, and it comes in whichever sequence that you've ordered it in. And I don't really deal with the, so it's not that like part. It's, you don't just say, "Excuse wow. me, please send me some frog," or "I no. need some corpus," <laughs> or something like that. No, you uh, tell the like, exact uh, of the different bases that are in the DNA. The, and the G's and the A's and the T's and the C's. Yes, those ones. Right. Yeah, so you can just oh, order but, those. But because you've only got single strands, would you only have two of those? No, so you still have all four. Um, okay. The point of the double strand is that one would be attached to the other. So yeah. um, you can still have them all in one strand. And just it would be that if you have ATGC on one strand, the opposite strand would have the opposite ones i don't remember the, the complementary strain yeah exactly all right we've got the who we've got the what why yeah we've got the why i i think i i'm, I'm knowledge still trying... human Not... endeavor right, so yeah so because we... it's there gregoire right. so it's synthetic dna which is which look that's also upset me on a, on a deep fundamental level. Well, that's okay. So it's not like encoding DNA. We're not going to go there. We're not going to go there. So uh, why DNA then? Um, no, no, no. Just G's, A's, C's, and T's. Great. <laughs> no, why? Oh, very funny. That's on okay. the chromosome, isn't it? That's sorry. That's the, that's the yeah, yeah. Sorry. It's a whole different thing. Ugh. Yeah. Um, the point of the DNA, besides the fact that it's like cheap, it's easy to get, is the fact that because you can sequence it really well, uh, you can know the sequence. You can determine exactly where it was cut. And you could do this with many other particles, but the ease of this one comes with the fact that you can put it in a PCR test, which is just a test that they do. Biochemists do it. I don't really know what they do, but they can just basically tell, yep, it was cut here. And they can tell us exactly where it was cut. So it's for a precision. So, so how okay. big would one of these detectors be? Right. So I would need to look that up for you because... Like, is it like the size of a fingernail or the size of a bed or the size of a football field? How big is your um, DNA, Dan? Good lord. Because your DNA is tiny. <laughs> and like, do you have to like, how do you, how do you test every single one of them? It's a proof of concept. <laughs> I'm not actually sure how large this has to be, if I'm honest. So I know that when I was simulating uh, this, I was just uh, simulating a 100 by 100 micrometer or nanometer. So oh. it was it was quite small. Um, we were just like testing the interaction of different particles with the goal to see if we can interact. Like how often do protons interact with it, for example, or how often do neutrons or neutrinos interact with the surface? So uh, I was testing a very small strand, and that was my contribution uh, or a small portion of it. So I'm not sure where they took it from there. So were you testing a single strand? No, no, sorry. I was testing a hundred by hundred uh, square surface of the gold, from which. There would be a strand spaced out every like 10 units if it was micrometers, yeah. nanometers, I can't remember. Yeah. 
Is it taller than it is wide? Like, is it do, do the do the jellyfish threads hang down really far? In um, the pictures that I see, yep, I would say so. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm, I'm loving this, Ravi, and I, I'm not because not I know you're feeling a bit uncomfortable here. But I just okay. once, once again, you are a theoretician. This is a the, this is a theoretician thing. You are not a an experimentalist. Would that be fair to say? For, in for this, case. this one, in this case, definitely. I, I was uh, testing the interactions of different particles with the surfaces and the yeah. actual uh, measurements of how big this would theoretically be. I don't know. Ravi <laughs> hasn't right. got time to do all the messy stuff of putting goopy DNA on pieces of gold like a common. <laughs> chemist he's a physicist so you've got a model of this yes and and you have to work and using i'm assuming maths you're like this is what we would expect to see if we did this yeah so a lot of the uh maths was done with my collaborators or they had done a lot of it for me Uh, my contribution was mostly the experimental uh, side of or the modeling side and and testing the model itself. So this is a research paper that is out and uh, welcome to have a look at it or read the pictures on it as well. Um, we will for put a, the link in the show notes. Did you hear a tone there? I had yeah. a tone. <laughs> <laughs> Was there yeah. a I did not intend for that to be a tone. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Ravi. Ravi, just slap him down. It's fine. We all do. It's fine. It's all good. Look, that's fascinating, Ravi. Absolutely. Every time I hear about it, it makes me ask more and more questions about it. I want to know a little bit now about you, if that's okay, because this feels like not something that you'd go, oh, yes, I was doing, at the time, I believe you were doing your undergraduate in physics. Was that Mm -hmm. correct? I was doing my undergraduate degree in physics and chemistry at the University of Sydney. Okay, so physics and chemistry. So there's there's already, okay, we're already stepping into some pretty wild territory at this point. And is that normal? Was that something different that you've done? There were a couple of other students in the same kind of structure as I was who did do their degrees in chemistry and physics as well, but not many. I think a lot of physicists did physics and maths or just physics, and a lot of chemists would tend towards chemistry and biology. So chemistry and physics was like, it's one of the rarer combinations, but it's one that there were a couple of other students who participated in that as well. And it led to something like this. We're working on a paper which you're one of the published authors on, which yeah. marries a hard maths, but physics and chemistry as well. Yeah. So the DNA component would be considered biology by some, <laughs> although we are treating it just as a string of chemicals. So it's chemistry in its value to this project, I suppose. If it was considered biology, it's like the easiest biology ever. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the real, the, the right on the cusp between chemistry and uh, and biology. Yeah, exactly. So my next question would then fearful be, but you chose to go into astrophysics. Yeah, astrophysics was always kind of the end goal for me. Even though I was studying chemistry, I've always been mostly interested in astrophysics. There is a subfield of astrochemistry as well, which I did look into a little bit, but wasn't super keen on. These are the people who occasionally get into the news by going, hey, we found a a universe made out of alcohol or sugar. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so that would be a lot of planetary physics or or planetary astrochemistry or looking at nebula and working out what molecules exist in them. But that didn't really interest me, so I just kind of went into the pure astrophysics. Your path was quite wide and you've gone more narrow, but you could go back in, down a different path in the future, more chemistry if you chose to. You're not like stuck in this this path forever if you choose to. No, yeah, I, I could definitely go back and do some chemistry. I've been I've involved myself as, in as many chemistry projects as I could in my undergraduate degree just because I found it fun. It was ultimately just not what I wanted, but you know. So Ravi, you're studying physics now. You've done this crazy 
DNA and dark matter thing. I'm, I'm guessing that was your crazy young, I'm going to go out and do DNA and dark matter. And then you're going to hit middle age education and you're going to settle down and just be calm and sensible. I'm sure we, that was, that must be the only crazy thing you've done. You know, another weird stuff. That project was both prefaced with and followed by a couple of other interesting projects that all kind of fall into the interdisciplinary category. I'm not sure which one to start with, if I'm honest. I could do this chronologically. Linear time. What a horror. Yeah. So uh, the first project that I had undertaken was during the summer break between my first and second year of undergraduate physical chemistry. And I had chosen to do a bioengineering project. And that one was to study the effects that a particular chemical had on the quality of blood proteins. This chemical being one that you would coat the inside of different medical devices that blood would flow through to allow the blood to flow through them without needing to give the patient anticoagulants. These types of instruments were like your heart bypass devices or the dialysis. This was a project that was trying to test this new chemical that would allow you to use these instruments without having to drug the patient, basically. So does this chemical make the blood anticoagulate or is this a chemical that makes the the hose real slippery? Exactly. So this is a chemical that makes the hose real slippery, as you said. (laughs) So it's based on creating a microstructure onto the surface of your tube and wow. then coating that microstructure with liquid chemical. And then instead of having this solid to liquid interface between your solid tube and the liquid blood, you would have a liquid to liquid interface where the coating on the inside of the tube would be the part that's interacting with the blood and would allow it to so flow. So when blood coagulates, mm-hmm. can it only do that on a surface? Well, it needs something to attach to in order for it to start blocking your device. So, so like a like a nucleation point? Yeah, or? sure. Like a nucleation point. Uh, it, okay. Yeah, because blood can interact with itself and become clumped, but if you just allow it to continue flowing, then it won't stick to any one part and create a blockage. Wow. Uh, yeah, so usually My, this is... for me here is, can yep. this be upscaled to make slippery slides, real, you know, like water slides, really crazy slippery? You know, <laughs> you know, get, get you down there even faster. Coat it um, on the inside. You know what I'm saying? This is, import, this is important science now. Yeah, theoretically, yes, but it would be very yes. expensive. <laughs> ah, damn it, I need this. But you'd save on water. Like, you could have a waterless water park. Um, oh, mind you, the end might be a bit painful. Well, it still has to be... <laughs> Well, it still has to be liquid on liquid, so you yeah. still need to have some sort of liquid, unless yeah. the person's liquid, and that's 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 bad news. Yeah, exactly. So the we're getting um, real sweaty. The the surface is a liquid surface that you would be able to float a liquid on top of and have that liquid not stick to any part of it. It's based on the science of a lotus leaf. It's a natural hydrophobic surface, and it does this by having like a microstructure on it. And this is similarly, it's you've created a microstructure onto the surface of these tubes and you put a liquid onto that microstructure and then that holds this liquid that interacts with your liquid. So it, okay. <laughs> are we able to envisage if we shrunk down real tiny mm-hmm. uh, what that surface would look like to make it hydrophobic? Yeah, if you were to go really tiny, it would look a little bit kind of like your analogy earlier with the wheat. So it's a lot of stringy molecules that are stuck to your tube on one end and kind of point upwards in the other direction. And you have like this, lots of needles kind of pointing up and on the side that is facing toward the inside of the tube, they have a molecular structure that allows them to hold on to this 
liquid that you add to them that will repel the other liquid, if that makes sense. Ah, righto. You said this is between your first and second years. All right. Yeah. So then, so chronologically, what other, what other crazy things have you been up to? <laughs> Following this project, I did the DNA Dark Matter project. and We'll cross that now. We, we understand that fully, perfectly. Yeah. Don't be Dan. Actually, I, I would like to look at those pictures. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> we'll put them in the show notes. In the show notes, we'll look up later, Dan. Yeah. Following that, I did a project where I was part of a team. We were competing in this international biochemistry competition. It's called Biomod, and the point of it is to employ the very, very small biochemical field of DNA origami to create basically anything. Hang on, what? <laughs> DNA origami. Yeah. Wait, what? We're yes. back to what? We're back to what again? Sorry. Yeah, okay. So DNA origami is a field of research where people will take your single strands of DNA that they create and they have sequenced it very carefully. And what you can do with a single strand of DNA is you can get it to fold over itself in certain ways to create little structures and when you look at those little structures with your electron microscopy, you can see like little smiley faces if you decided to make a little smiley face out of DNA. Or you can make 3D objects like tubes and you can make lots of little structures just out of the DNA folding in on itself. And you can manipulate how it folds in on itself by designing the strand to have a particular sequence. So, okay, I'm going to take a guess at how this works. Yep. So would you set the little markers, your G's and A's and T's and C's, mm-hmm. so that they so that the matchup was in just the right place, that when you sort of shook it around, certain bits clung to each other yep. and formed that shape. Yeah, exactly. So you can get a single strand to cling to itself in certain regions, but you can also introduce small strands that are like a clips that will find themselves attracted to one particular section of your strand. And then if those interact, then you will have a double strand in that one region and that for- forces it to bend over on itself. And you can do that many times and kind of force it to pinch in different directions and get that to form your two or three dimensional shape. Your secondary strands that are being used to pinch it don't need to be nearly as long as the first strand. So you don't okay. really need to have a portion that doesn't interact with it. You just want to create the portion that is most likely to interact with that one single area and then it will. And then you just introduce more of these smaller strands that can kind of latch onto the large strand in different regions. So you can create those bumps by creating a bunch of smaller strands that attach to the larger strand in specific areas near the end of the strand. Wow. That is crazy. So what are the limitations of shapes that you could make? Oh, are there any? When I had done this project, there were a lot of really interesting shapes that were made when we went to, there was a university in San Francisco where this competition was held, and I got to see the different makings of different groups around the world and what they had come up with. And the ones that stick out to me were, at some point, people had made these wings that were able to flap, and these wings are made entirely of DNA, and you got them to flap by mixing in these clipping strands into different regions. So you would get a strand that forces the wings to flap down, then you would remove that strand with another strand that's complementary to it, and then they would go back to their relaxed state, and then you can introduce a secondary strand that will get it to like, take another state. Oh, my. It's like trying to build the game Mousetrap, and all you have to make it with are mousetraps. 
Um, I have not played Mousetrap, so I don't know this analogy. <laughs> no one has since 1973, but that's okay. Right. <laughs> Sorry. That's, all right. So I'm having trouble functioning at this point. What I think is amazing about all of this is all these options are out there when you're studying and you can get involved in really bizarre projects, which mm-hmm. proof of concept projects and cross, as you said before, it's cross disciplines to give you a good idea of what it's not just working on one thing forever. We said before you, you can work on lots of different things and get a feel of it or get a flavor of what they're going to do, what you could be doing in the future. Yeah, exactly. So a lot of these projects, I, I spoke to one of my lecturers in one of my classes about a project that they had given me. And I said, well, it was a creative project where we were able to decide we can create any creative solution that we want to it. And the creative solution that I wanted to implement to the problem that they had given me was one that they said was very similar to a researcher working in that field who happens to be at the university. They said, you know what, you should talk to them and work out if you can do a project with them because that seems like you were thinking along the same lines. So that was how I did the first project with the slippery slope, uh, the slippery not the slippery slope, the slippery surface uh, for blood. Yeah, the slippery slope is when you start making that DNA that makes more of itself. That's the slippery slope. <laughs> the way that I got into a lot of these projects was just talking to my lecturers and creating a rapport with them where I could say, hey, I'm interested in this. I want to do something. And then if something really interesting came up, like the dark matter detector, they would come up to me and say, hey, there's a really cool project you should look at. So that was the way that I kind of got into these projects. So let's go back to the DNA and dark matter before we finish up here. Do you know if this ever got built by anyone else? I know you were doing proof of concept. Has this been built by anyone? I don't know that the technology is sufficient for this to be feasibly created. And also I imagine that one of the requirements for this detector was that it be buried kind of deep underground so that a lot of the interaction of just the particles that we get bombarded with every day don't just immediately destroy the product. That would mean that when you're making it, you probably need to encapsulate it in something that was don't, doesn't let it do that, and that would be hard. Getting DNA to attach to gold in like a very structured sense is not something that I'm familiar with being done. So there's some technical challenges to the creation of this device. You can't just put a dob of superglue on there. Yeah, not really. Um, <laughs> you you got to start messing with Wonderwall's forces or some nonsense yeah. like that. Yeah, pretty much. Again, um, get on to an experimentalist, goodness sakes. <laughs> the theoreticians are doing all the hard, heavy lifting here. Just letting it all down, experimentalists. Please don't come at me, experimentalists, please. I'm, I'm so sorry. You can actually make they've the got things. the skills. <laughs> they have skills. They don't just make plans. <laughs> They follow through. My brother-in-law, he's an engineer. And he's starting to ask some questions like, are they packed very densely together, these DNA strands? Reasoning for that was just that they hopefully the different DNA strands don't interact with each other. Mm. And that could complicate the, the directionality measurements. If, if a DNA strand is straight versus if it's like on an angle and then roped around another DNA strand, it might complicate the ability for you to determine if it being cut at a certain point means that it came from this angle or from another angle. Would they be all the same pattern? No. So you would want to have them be different so that you can tell which cutoff strand kind of belongs to what. Because when you do the testing, you would only be testing the strands that were ripped off of the surface, not the strands that are still attached. So they all need their own they need their own ID. Pretty much, yeah. Which is something that you can but, do with DNA just because like you can just sequence it differently a lot of times. 
but you wouldn't want them to like match up. Yeah. Because they'd stick together. Yes. So the maths to get them to all go into a, an array all close together where they're not sticking together, but they're all like, that would be a fascinating. Is that, so that was your job. Uh, no, I, I was not the person sequencing the DNA. I was the person who was just testing the interactions with the surface as well as the interactions with the DNA. So my right. project kind of assumed that it was created already and this is that they no one had screwed it up yeah pretty much the fun thing with dna as well is that even though a t g and c are supposed to just interact with their complementary partner g likes to interact with i think it's a i'm not sure it's a or c or a or t as well as c so it likes to interact oh, wow. with its own partner as well as one of the other ones hmm. randomly so you don't like to have a lot of g's that's the one thing i remember from the second project <laughs> So there's like all of these little tiny minutiae that you need to like consider when you're making a DNA strand. You don't like have two of the DNA strands mix up. Like you go away for a week and come back and there's like a, just a baby there. And you're like, oh, not again. <laughs> um, oh, it's just I don't know how me. biology or physics works, obviously. So that's fine. Yeah. It occurs to me that I never actually described what my other DNA origami project was. Oh, I described okay, somebody good. else's, which was the thing that I had observed while I was in San Francisco. But the project that we had done was you try to create an antibot. Well, our project was to try to create an antibot that would kill bacteria. And the way that it would do this is through apoptosis. So apoptosis is the fancy word for uh, puncturing the surface of the bacteria and causing the insides of it to spill out to become the outsides. And the way that you would do this is you would encapsulate a pore, that is the needle that you stab into the bacteria, in this tube that is also made of DNA and has a bunch of the antigens. Yeah, so it had a number of antigens on it that would be able to interact with the bacteria. You would then have that outer shell kind of dock onto a bacterial cell wall or like the cell. And then the pore on the inside would be released. And the way this is done is you use more DNA strands to cause the little tube on the inside of the big tube to sink down and be released from its holding facility within the barrel and then it would sink down it would puncture the surface of the bacteria and it was hollow so that it was like a tube through which all the insides would shoot out so to to find this solution is this a very much a you have to make the right shape Mm -hmm. and it will do what you need it to do there's it's as simple as that pretty much yeah so if you look up DNA origami, you can see lots of beautiful things that many people have made. And you weaponized it. Yeah. (laughs) So my job in that project was mostly the transmission electron microscopy of the stuff that was being made by my team. So they were the ones who sequenced it and they were the ones who put it in the little tube and shook it around and made it become the shape that it was. And then it was my job along with my supervisors to dye the DNA with uranium and then take it into the microscopy lab and then get the images of it. And because it's transmission electron microscopy, we could see the inner tube within the outer tube as well. So you could see that it had formed the structures that we wanted it to. In my mind, it's sort of like two spaceships coming up to each other and then docking. Like they're putting out the docking arm and they go, oh yeah, man, we're friends. And then you put your docking arm out, then you hit them. And when they open the door, you fire like a great big tube right through their spaceship. And yep. everything just gets sucked out the tube. You're suckers! It yeah, pretty wasn't much. Friendly at all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was the concept of that project. So, for fun, I don't <laughs> think it's. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think any of this is feasible. But it's just fun. Yeah, yeah. 
That's very cool, though. But then this sort of science would have applications in medicine, I would have thought. Yeah. When you think about the fact that this is made of biological material and that you can get the DNA to respond to many things, you can attach different things to the DNA to make it, for example, photosensitive so it can curl up under the a light of some particular wavelength. Drug delivery is like a big part of uh, what mm. a lot of the justification for DNA origami is to just kind of encapsulate uh, drugs in DNA and just kind of have them delivered to the right spot. And then because you can attach antigens to them, you can attach these kind of like, they're essentially just sensors that tell it when to attach to something and then it can undergo different processes. I remember at the time I had an idea for a DNA Velcro type thing where if you just had like many strands of DNA, just kind of be able to like interlock with each other and then you can get them to untangle with each other as well. That was something that I thought could have like a biological application because it could be like a mini suture inside the body. The possibilities are endless because it is just origami of these chemical strands. Ravi, what's in your future then? What other what what are you hoping to find or, or can you give us any secrets that you that you're working on at the moment? If the answer is no, that's we, we understand you just can't Well I'm always interested in doing like more interdisciplinary projects just because that's kind of thing that I find most interesting, I suppose. At the moment, I'm focusing on my PhD, so it's a bit hard for me to take on additional projects and just kind of let my mind run loose with it. I have, within my own work, attempted to incorporate different things that are not traditionally incorporated with astrophysics. So I enjoy playing games, and I have attempted to incorporate a lot of my online gaming stuff into my research as well. And I have tried to create a simulation in a game, and that was something that I have recently attempted to do i have failed but i am i am working on it <laughs> that's kind of what's i suppose is in my future is to continuously attempt to try to merge all the different things that i'm interested in and study it somehow ravi it has been really eye opening thank you very much for sharing this with us it's so exciting this is what i love about higher education when you're meeting people like yourself where people go hey let's try this thing we're going to put gold and simulate gold and dna and find dark matter and, and people don't go Call the funny farm. They go, yes, here's funding. We should work on that. It's it's brilliant. So thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. My pleasure. That was fun. Thank you once again to Ravi Jaswar. <laughs> the one thing I like the most about that interview is Ravi being cross-disciplinary, it's like science and chemistry and biology and working with other scientists. A lot of the time we talk to people who do work with other scientists, obviously they work together, but they're normally working on one thing like physics or this radio telescope. But his, especially at the undergraduate stage, is much more, hey, if you mix all the sciences together, you can do more than if you mix them apart. Yes. Oh, it's like that bit in The Wheel of Time where the two country magicians are like, oh, I always weave all of the elements together. I never just do one at a time. And then they heal one of the people who's been cut off from the magic source. Exactly like that. Very powerful stuff. When Ravi becomes a full wizard, get a pointy hat, he'll be Ravi the Grey. Oh, no, he'll be locked up because those guys are dangerous. Have you not read The Wheel of Time? Those guys are monsters. Right, okay. So as Sorry, I think Ravi. we've established that Ravi is a monster wizard. <laughs> That's what we like to say about our guests. That's exactly yeah. what we want to say. I mean, I knew that when he started talking about the blood stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. So welcome, listener, to episode 201. Woo. We made it all the way through. My brilliant scheme of infinite podcasts crashed around us. 
And uh, who did we do that for, Greg? We did that. We did that for us. We did that, that for us. Nice. That was for so us. So we hope that we hope that you guys enjoyed it. But if you didn't, who gives a shit? We had a ball coming up with it. We had a lot of fun. Dan yeah. and I had a wonderful time chatting about it. We're trying to work out what we wanted to do for the the, the anniversary or the two hundred, mm-hmm. which turned out to be the twelve year anniversary. We've been talking about it for a while. Just me being away and other things in life. We just never mm. really kind of got anything. We we considered big. a live show. Yeah. But being that part of the previous podcast was, oh, God, don't share your COVID with people. We were like, yes. oh, would that make us massive hypocrites? <laughs> That's exactly right. And so Dan and I went out. We just went out one afternoon and just having a nice time together, not podcasting, not doing this, enjoying each other's company. And we started talking about what we could do. And then suddenly, as these things happen, lightning struck and we had an infinite podcast. We had a celestial tortoise and we had... We're going to get the most famous person we know to give up her time uh, and then utterly railroad her off. We, all the stuff happened and it was great. Oh, and if I'm not mistaken, there was there was definitely an attitude of, oh, I can't believe you didn't give Deborah any, like the time <laughs> that she deserves. It's like, oh, no, 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 listener. <laughs> no. She's a very busy lady. That's yes. all that she would ever give us. Exactly right. So as we, much we as she loves us, she, yes. like two minutes is like yeah. exactly what we deserve. Exactly right. <laughs> we appreciate her time a lot. We're very so blessed. Thanks, thanks, thanks. I really appreciate all the messages we got from our listeners as well. Most of them confused, going, hey, don't know what you're doing, <laughs> but we love you, so best of luck with that. So thanks, thanks for that, everyone. I really appreciate it. And and I love it when do people write in and say, hey, I'm concerned about X, because it means that we're not just randoms. We, the people like, hey, buddy, we just want to know that we think you've fallen down or you're, you're doing something silly. We want to course correct you, which is great. Please do that. It's so kind. So thank you, everyone. The logo has gone back to Greg and Dan. <laughs> I'm so proud of the Celestial Tortoise logo because it was just horrifying enough that people actually thought we were serious. Like, I managed to walk <laughs> that line beautifully. I didn't know anything about that one, listeners. I had never seen it. So when it turned up, I was like, oh, oh no. That was great. It was so it's good. so unsettling, but not so unsettling that someone would look at it and go, well, that's obviously a joke. Although maybe you did, listener. You know, some of you are cleverer than the others. Like, in, I mean, sorry, that's not what I mean to say. I mean, some of you are dumber than the others. No, no, I've misspoken again. <laughs> Obviously, out of all our, our listeners, one of you is the dumbest. No, no. Greg, take over. <laughs> I think I'm going to say, what I enjoyed the most about it was it was something we, not many other podcasts have 0.5s. They sure as heck did have 0.75s. It was so that was very much smart enough to us as having this weird numbering system. So we, that was a big part of like, oh, maybe we could do a, a Xenos paradox idea of, of getting longer and longer numbers, halving the time and increasing the number out the back, just getting more and more irritating with the number. But it really backfired on you in real life, didn't it, Dan? Because you never coded oh. the website to do it. I was quite clever when I coded the website because I'm like, I will limit episode numbers to two decimal points because <laughs> no episode will ever need more than two decimal points. So I had to go in and change elements of the website just to do this joke. And even then, the final episode was incorrectly numbered because it ended in an eight when it should have ended in a seven five. I, but I, was I only had that eight rounding. decimal I was points. At the rounding. It rounds, yeah, because the program would round in a certain way. And yep. yes. That's amazing. Well, anyway, listeners, thank you very much for coming on that crazy ride. You learned about Google Blitzes. You learned about Dan and Greg yelling at each other. And it was just a lot of silliness and greatness. 
let's do it again in another 12 years. Oh, no, I'm going to do something much more irritating in 12 years. <laughs> Welcome to the Walk of Shame, where you, the listener, point out where we've made mistakes. And so I have a few this time, Dan. Some for you and some for me, some for both of us. Those long listeners would have always remembered Dr. Natasha, who does the book clubs for the Why Wonders Why. And long she's listeners. actually contacted us. Yes, yeah, that's most right. people call them tall, but maybe they're lying down listening. All the long list. We're well, back to arguing about where your belly button is—is is it up or down? We haven't got time for that. We have to get we have no time for this. Dan. We're going to revisit that in episode two hundred two. Oh yes. Yeah. So Dr. Natasha has a walk of shame for both of us. Oh okay. Just to do the most nitpicky walk of shame in the world ever, I've got here from Google exactly how you pronounce the name of this particular mathematician. Euler. Yes, you hear that? That is not Euler. That's not Euler. That's Euler. Euler. Thanks very much. See you soon. Euler. Euler. Yes. I did know that, but it's so much. E- it's so much easier to just read Euler. what you see. It's the Australian accent, I think, too. Euler, mate. It's like Euler. Yeah, but it's Euler. That, it's funny how when you don't hear someone say anything or say a word, you don't know how it's pronounced. So for me, the other one is is De Broglie, the scientist De Broglie. But it's spelt De Broglie, and all the way through my undergraduate, I never heard anyone say the name of De Broglie, mm. De Broglie. And it was only many, many years later I heard someone say blah 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 blah, blah De Broglie's wavelength, and went, "Oh, it's De Broglie, is it? Oh, there you go. I didn't know that one either until relatively recently, like decades now. I am getting on long in the tooth. But it's funny when you don't, if you only read it, you don't hear anyone say it. You don't know." Yeah, well, I only know it because of that Denise Williams song, Let's Hear It for De Broglie. <laughs> That's very good. That's very... I'm actually uh, very impressed by that. That's very uh, nice. <laughs> Let's hear it for De Broglie. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't scan. No, it doesn't, doesn't work. Scan. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Natasha. I'm actually slightly scared, Dan, because she's going to come on and tell us all about the expansion of the universe. I'm actually really nervous. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure she'll make a mistake and then one of our other listeners will take a crack at her. And the circle of illumination continues. <laughs> well, I've got to walk a shame here. And uh, can I just say, Greg, I thought she was my greatest enemy when all along she was my best friend. Eloise has sent in a walk of shame Duh! for Gregoire. At two Eloise! During episode 200, when Greg was busy insulting Canada and their paper money, he said, it's the 20th century. And she would like to remind you that we live in the future now. Oh, fine. It's been a That's long time she, since the 20th century, Greg. It has been a long time. She's right. I'll, I'll walk that walk of shame. I have always had a problem with linear time, so maybe I wasn't in the 21st century just before I said that. You never quite know with me. Or maybe you will be. <laughs> One day I will be in the 20th century. We have another one from Michael Barnes. Michael Barnes, friend of the show and all-round great guy. And he wants to point out that gelatinous cubes do actually Mm. move according to Dungeons & Dragons monster manuals. They actually have a movement stat. So we were talking about how gelatinous cubes only have to stay still, but supposedly not. They can wander around under their own power. Mm. Well, I did mention that, didn't I? I? Maybe. We discussed it as a stationary object. 
in certain scenarios. But we did discuss moving well, creatures and how the yes. uh, slime does move around. Oh, that's very true. We definitely did. So, so thank you, Michael, for that. So maybe that's, that's, that was sort of a maybe walk of shame. That's right. Definitely did move. But he just wants to know, mm. has anyone seen the movie Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves? Because supposedly there's a gelatinous cube in that. And does it move? And I have not seen it. So, no, uh, I would like to, though. It looks like more fun than the last Dungeons & Dragons movie, which I saw at the cinema. Well, yeah, yeah. I have a walk of shame for myself because I mm. mentioned that El Nasir sent a complaint message back in history about mm-hmm. Copper, and the proper name is E. Nasir, and he was the recipient of the letter from someone called Nanny. So E. Nasir, don't Very trust true. him on Copper. Yeah. Now, I will jump in here because Eric Wilson, he actually points exactly what you just said then as well, but it's not even the oldest, not not even, not even by, not even close. Oh, not even all close, right. Dan. It's not the oldest writing of any, uh, yes. So um, that was at 1750 BCE, so before current era. And yep. that was, you're right, that's a long time ago, but the oldest actual writing, 3500 BCE, it was the Kish Tablet, from Iraq, proto-cuneiform. Don't know what it actually is saying because it's proto-cuneiform, but it is the considered the oldest writing almost twice wow. the period back in time. So we don't know if it's a complaint letter at all. Uh, yes. So maybe the Enosia letter is the the first review of all time. <laughs> the one the that we know, yes. Well, no, no, maybe that's it, actually. That's a good point. There are quite a few older, actually. There's lots of different ones older than that but maybe now you mention it hmm they're saying we don't we can't read them so maybe that's just the first one we could read Mm. or maybe it's just the first time someone was so angry at the service that they got that they're like i am gonna write a letter because writing a letter involved getting a tablet and chiseling (laughs) the the, the words out (laughs) imagine being so angry that you're like give me my chisel just realised here, there is actually, a, I've already blown away my own theory of maybe it was the first one we know. No, no, there is actually one from 2600 BCE, which was a hymn written onto some parchment in cuneiform that we actually know what that what that was saying. Also found in Iraq. Iraq, hmm. man, that place was the birthplace of civilization. the whole area. Yeah, the, the, it was like a big cradle of it. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Eric, for that one. So we got another walk of shame from Ilana. She visited Canada in 2018 and she can confirm that Canadians switched to polymer money. Good. Excellent. They should. And it's they're our sensi- tech. They're sensible people, even though I hate them. Yeah. Uh, now, Dan, another one from Eric Wilson. Eric, this is a double. So Eric's back with something else. Uh, you made a mm-hmm. comment in the everything fit everything into a rat segment about hibernating bears. It actually turns out bears don't hibernate. Well, this matches up with my walk of shame for myself from Jay. (laughs) So I'll let Eric say it then, and if you disagree or not, they go into torpor. They don't hibernate. So you can't count it as light hibernation, but the big difference is that they can actually wake up. If someone, if you burst into the cave and went, the bear could go, I'll kill you, instead of just lying there like a big idiot. That's exactly what Jay pointed out. Unlike hedgehogs <laughs> and marmots, where if you burst in on them, when they're, they'll be just like, yeah, don't talk to them until they've had their coffee. <laughs> Chipmunks, deer mice, woodchucks, ground squirrels, bees, and some bats also hibernate. Bears, raccoons, and skunks are all torpory kind of animals. Takes all sorts. Thank you uh, to J- everyone. So Jay and to Eric and to Dan, everyone's just coming in on that one. And Jay also mentions that in regards to putting bears in space, 
he does mention that early Soviet cosmonauts actually carried pistols in case of bear attack. So I think we can extrapolate from there that there are bears in space. I, I think Soviets knew what they were talking about. They, they, they were yeah. the first one to get a, get a football up there. So good people, good people. This is from Scott, friend of the show, Scott, maybe not considered the walk of shame. When I was flung back in time to Egypt and I was trying to work out if I could make black powder so I could start lobbing bombs at people and, and mm-hmm. control the time in that period, I could get access to the saltpeter and yep. I could get charcoal by burning some stuff. And mm-hmm. sulfur was my big problem. I couldn't work out how I was going to get sulfur. Scott writes in to say that there are hot springs in Egypt I did some research into that. There are definitely hot springs in Egypt, which I did not know, especially along the east coast of Egypt, along the canal area around there, because mm-hmm. that's where the, the end of the plate is. And so there is like a tectonic shifting. That's a good place for things to spew out of the earth. That's right. The edge of and a so plate. They, they definitely have lots of hot springs along there and people go do medicinal stuff. I couldn't find definitive answer pictures or definitive that that you could find sulfur there. That doesn't mean that it's not there. I just couldn't find evidence of it would feel odd for it not to be there, but I couldn't like at Yellowstone, they go, there's sulfur. And here's a picture in Mm. Egypt. They go, we have hot springs. You'd Mm, need to go and have a sniff. Exactly. Exactly. So potentially, I could have made gunpowder back in Egypt. Because if we went back there and said, excuse me, I need this yellow stuff, they go, yeah, yeah, just go in the baths, you weirdo, and pull it out of the baths you know, over there. Next to that place, mm. they're going to build that canal in a few thousand years. <laughs> so thank you to Scott. And finally, the final walk of shame this episode has a lot. <laughs> I think it's reflective of the podcast that our episode 200 had eight walk of shame responses. <laughs> I think it's also, it's infinite. We want to get infinite, Dan. 1% of infinite is still infinite. That's, you know, we've actually done oh, very point. well. We only have eight. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. We, we knocked it out of the park then. Yeah. Fantastic news. That's as good as zero. If we have yeah. eight compared to infinite, that rounds down to zero. Yeah. Well, well, we, we should have just skipped this thing. We should have just erased this. I wouldn't even put it in. wouldn't even bother. But uh, Andy Trousdale contacted us and he said at, Three minutes and 25 seconds into episode 200.875, or as Andy (laughs) referred to it, episode (laughs) 200.875.554, which is both a very clever and vaguely annoying joke. So perfect for the podcast. (laughs) Greg declares about hydrogen in space. He says it's diffuse as heck, one atom per square metre. Ah, damn it. And (laughs) Andy's very disappointed to discover that Greg is a flat universer. (laughs) Well, the universe is technically flat, as in its curvature of the universe is not, it's not, it's anyway, we won't go there. No, it's not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying it's, it's, the curvature is actually flat. Yeah, space time's flat, but. Yes, space time. Right. Yes, yes, that's right. I, oh, wait, that, that, I'm absolutely terrified that Natasha's going to hear, Dr. Natasha's okay. going to hear this and just school me at this point. But, anyway. but, but, but you're talking about space time. You're actually taking something that's four-dimensional and saying, <laughs> oh, yeah, but it's flat, but four-dimensionally it's, flat. Yeah, that's why, yeah, four-dimensionally speaking, doesn't make flat. any Technically, sense I'm at all. correct. The best kind of correct, yeah. which I'm not. No, and no, I'm certainly wrong. you don't me- measure space time in square metres either. No, no, you really don't. No, no. 
but he says clearly this should have been per cubic meter or one atom every 0.203542 cubic smoots for the American <laughs> listeners. Which, you know, gold star, Andy. But absolutely. Well done, Andy. Oh, I love it. That's fantastic. Can we just go back to the bit where you travelled back in time to ancient Egypt? Should we clear up what happened there? Like when we're, when we're talking about what happened in episode 200, should we clear up the fact that you had a, a pimp my time that you were supposed to do and then you accidentally did a different one again? And, we, and at the last moment we had to come up with that whole parallel universe hijinks? Yes, it was good because the one I did before was nonsense. The wheel, that's garbage. It was much better this time, Theodolites. Oh, my goodness. Wish I thought of that earlier on. I didn't and know we could go back and do these. Yeah, yeah, thank goodness. People really so, like them. I was really surprised. People really, really, really like them. Like, I, I, we got a lot of emails about them. People were excited to see it back. So, yeah, too bad I'm not swayed by public opinion. <laughs> Case in point, our latest, <laughs> our most recent set of podcasts. <laughs> You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And Greg at smartenough.org. Get along to the website, smartenough.org, and click on the buttons or fill out whatever you want to there. How many decimal places can accept now? Like we could have episode 201 point... Eight decimal point places, which was one less than we needed. I don't know. We have become death destroyer of podcasts. I just don't know. Are we... Like are we, are we ready for this power, Dan? Are we are we are we sensible enough? Are we should we have this? I, oh, I think we've proven that we're sensible enough. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to support the podcast, you know there's the monetary stuff that we always talk about. We can skip that this week, or you can tell people about oh, us. Not, not, the, not, the, not the Patreon people. Don't you skip it this week? Oh no, no I won't do that. But but you could tell people about us. Absolutely. And what I asked last time, well. Last time, time four. It- an infinite amount of podcasts ago you asked this. <laughs> it was an age ago. I said, look, if you can put out a review for us, that'd be great. Just just review us. It, that's how you get us get us out there. You get us into the world. Write us a review in a place you, might, you haven't seen it. And so Michael, uh, Michael, Mikhail Kidar, or Michael Kidder, uh, got in contact and said, look, you don't have to read oh, this you're, one. You're, you're in big trouble. You don't have to read this one way. out. He's a Patreon person, so... Wonderful friend of the show. Thank you very much, Michael. And you don't have to read this out, but here's one I wrote in the past. But I, it wasn't that long ago, so I'm going to read it out. My review. He called it my review, which is lovely. One of the podcasts where I not only listen to every episode, but support on Patreon. Fun and interesting science podcast. Pure and simple. Two guys talking and having fun. No overproduction. Not longer than necessary. And regular and steady. Would give more stars, but they can't pronounce my name correctly. Ah... So thank you, Mick, Mick, oh dear, Mr. M. Was that comment about production like a double-edged compliment I think, there? I think so. I think it's so. like, that's what it kind of sounds it. a bit shitty and that's sort of nice. That's, that's unlike those very well-produced ones that all those big companies make. These guys are rough and raw. No, I, I was all for it. I love the fact it was it was very glowing yet also stuck it to us. I'm, I'm all for that. That's it shows a respectful but open-minded way of looking at things. We know, we know we're not, we're not the best in the world. We're not that. What are you talking about? This is my favourite podcast. <laughs> it's one I definitely spend the most time on. <laughs> <laughs> if you are a second-tier patron, I am going to read out your names. But I've come up with a game this time. Ooh. 
and Greg's going to be involved. So I'm going to get Greg to say something about each one of these people that rhymes with their name. So the first person is like Matthew Toy, and he might be a good boy. Right. So we're going to do that. Okay. So we've already done Matthew Toy, Elizabeth Yunkin. She's very spunkin'. Uh, Andrew Potts. Uh, we like him lots. Britta Rogotsky. Oh, no. From her, I never want to flee. Perfect. Matt Ewers. Matt Ewers. Yep. <laughs> Matt Ewers. Better than France de Tours? <laughs> That's a far too long. Please, please edit a lot of those breaks out. That wasn't worth it at the end. It's called anticipation. Lindsay Jenkinson. You can just rhyme with son, so you can go, is a lot of fun, but it feels like cheating. Andrew Trousdale. Uh, is the epitome of being male. Andrew Whitehurst. In my heart will always be first. Mariana Scott. Also like them a lot. Avi <laughs> Greenbury. We hope that their love for us will always be free. Uh, that's more of a compliment for us. Ilana <laughs> Mitchell. <laughs> Is our own personal Cal L. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Ivan. <laughs> like, listener, I'd like to point out, you're hearing him say perfect, but I'm watching his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Ivand. What? Ivand. Ivand? Yeah. This is a name that I've said every single month yes. for several years. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Ivand and um, um, has a wonderful mind. Mind. Perfect. And Gronya Maguire will always be the front of our choir. So thank you all very much to the second tier patrons. I will never do that to you again. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He did not tell me this was happening. If I had, would you have done any better? (laughs) Dear ChatGPT, help me. Please, God, help me. The top tier, the, I need to insult them. And these well, I can't ones, think it was a second tier, I'd like to point out, but anyway. <laughs> and based on our interview, I'm going to be relating all of these insults to blood. <laughs> okay. Joey Wesley, you make it impossible to be positive. Mm. Uh, Mikhail Kedar, you're not my type. Mm-hmm. Steve Eichenhout, you're a clot. <laughs> Tom Seary. You're a scab. Steve Stewart, you belong in a cell. Mm, mm-hmm. And finally, Robert Shouten, you are like a donation from a homosexual man. Unacceptable. What? For reasons that are much more nuanced than we have time to go in here. No, that's what? In certain states of Australia and... Uh, I thought it was all states. Is it, is it okay. states? In, Yeah, okay. I just want to just put a caveat on that. We're not just being homophobic it's just ridiculous. no 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 the whole the system is uh, yeah 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 it's, it's a dumb there's a, there's thing a whole you... backstory there that again much more nuanced than we have time <laughs> yeah. to go into we're not the bad guys here it's the government or at least we're aligning ourselves with the bad guys but we're not the bad guys <laughs> and even then we maybe not maybe we're not probably we're not but we might be too nuanced it's too nuanced too nuanced no and finally, these patrons who do not need to be insulted 
are, well, they're not forever in my heart, but they are intermittently in my heart. Eric Wilson, Michael Barnes, <laughs> Scott Driscoll, Al Batson and Morden O'Hare. Now, Morden said I didn't have to insult him anymore quite a while ago and I got confused and I did insult him and I forgot <gasps> to insult Steve Stewart last time, if you remember. Right, so, yes. so if I need to be insulting you and I'm not, then tell me. And if I'm insulting you and I shouldn't be, remind me because none of this is written down anywhere. That's just good advice for everyone, all our listeners in life. Yeah. Find out if you should be insulting people or not insulting people. Yep. And if someone's insulting you and they shouldn't be, make it well known. Tell your old friends, Dan and Craig. And finally, Seb Torchman, who has been one of our very unassuming patrons at the lower levels for a very long time, dropped a very, very generous tip in the tip jar. So thank you so much. I'm going to blow it all on snow globes. Yay! Another way you can support me, if you like, is get onto Steam, you know, the Steam video game place and look up a game called Autoforge and wishlist it because I worked on that and so it's sort of in development and there is a demo that you can find if you, you can track it down. It'll, there'll be a link on the website and you can download the demo and you can play the demo. I nice. Think, I think I think the demo is free. Should it's be. Spend some demo. money. For goodness sakes. Oh, yeah, spend some money. And some and a, a tiny fraction will go into my pocket. Yay! And as we always like to say... Welcome to 201 and beyond! Can you just pronounce your full name for me? That has it's pronounced Roddy Jaswar. I wasn't sure it was Jaswar or Jaswar. Jaswar. Excellent. Cool. Thank you very I much. I kept pronouncing it French. Jaswar. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dan yes, has- okay. <laughs> I believe my first name means something in French as well. I was told it means uh, pleasant dream? or something like that. Oh, oh okay. Oh, there you go. Ra- you, you, Rav, you have- Rav is dream. No, hmm. maybe Ravi is dreamy. Dreamy just <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to speak faster than I'm thinking. Which is not helpful. Yeah, um, that, that happens a lot on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> This, this will neaten up nicely. I wouldn't worry too much about that. Okay. You do look a bit like you're in one of these underground bunkers where the testing happens. Yeah. Uh, this the is... ceiling's got a very industrial feel. Yeah. This is my uh, student accommodation. So they haven't painted the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> well, they what they're assuming is that you shouldn't be look, You have no time to be staring at ceilings. You should be looking at your books at all times. Yeah, That's yeah pretty much. Yeah. The students never look up. They only look down. <laughs> It's that show's been cancelled, so I'm not going to offend anybody that can hire, that can hire me. Ah, so we can mock the mock the week. Yeah, that was uh, Dan wrote that. I'm not not. I'm trying to pass on to Dan. I really whoa, really like it. Whoa, no, no, whoa. no, 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 no. I really really like it. That's the part that I was like, wait, that could be a problem. It's been a team effort until there's threats from the BBC, and suddenly it's like <laughs> Dan did that. Honestly, no, no, one no. of my jokes when I was on Mock the Week was they I was the hundredth ever guest, so they gave me this little trophy. And I said, the hundredth ever the guest and the third woman. And, <laughs> and which got a big laugh at the time, but so many people, maybe said the fifth woman or something, and maybe so many people wrote again, you're not the fifth woman. I'm like, it's, a jo- it's what we in the business call a joke. Um, yep. Imagine okay. going, imagine watching Mock the Week and every time that there's a, a, an inconsistency or, or, or hyperbole, they're like, well, that's not right. I mean, 100% that. <laughs> Network is struggling. Don't worry, your conversation will still be great. I don't know if that's true or not. 
That sounds like a lie yeah. to me. So that's the thing they say. Oh no, it wasn't you, baby. It's it. It was. It was. You're tired. That's fine. It's okay. Hey, hey, hey! Everyone gets latency sometimes. That's. Right. <laughs> we'll try again in forty-five minutes. Look, look! Having a high ping happens to everyone. God, it's been it's been years since my ping was really high. <laughs> I will be glad when this is all over. I'll be glad when episode 201 goes out the door. <laughs> Bit of extra work to get done this stream. Then I, I can move on to the other shit that's going on in my life. Oh, no. What's what's wrong? I've kind of had like 10 months of doing this video game. And then when yep. I stopped that, I had the expat stuff. And when I stopped the expat stuff, I had the episode 200 stuff. And so there's, I'm rapidly coming up to a point well, then there's going to be house building stuff. I don't quite know God, yeah. what that's going to be like. But at some point in the next several months, I may actually be able to be like, oh, I can get back to fretting about COVID and the environment. Wonderful news. <laughs> Wonderful news. Oh, the day, the day I, all I have to worry about is the, is the imminent demise of the human race. I, mm. I am counting the days. <laughs> Counting the days or just moving the minute hand closer to midnight. Either, any way you want to look oh. at it, really. Oh. Actually, I must admit, I do have that sort of vague anxiety that we'll finally get like a couch and a TV. It'll be like this point where it's like everything's back to normal and we'll put the t- TV on and the first thing will be like a nuke has dropped in like <laughs> Russia or China or, you know, off the coast of California or something. I'd just be like... All right, here we go again. But at least you'll have that couch situation sorted out. Looks <sighs> like meerkats can do the whole, it's a hawk, or let's say ground or air, so they mm. want no way to look. Uh, magpies all, can do it too. They're all little Winston Churchills. What? Little meerkat, like, oh, we'll fight them on the beaches. <laughs> we'll fight them in the air. <laughs> Wow, I understand, but hold. We'll stand on the shoulder of a photographer and look adorable <laughs> and make sure that shit's not coming down. Fascinating, fascinating tale. Meerkats, they've got a call for Nazis. <laughs> What's weird is that you wouldn't have thought we'd know that now, but it's it's a it's a call that's like prevalent in today's society, much more yeah. than we thought it would be. Yeah. It's just background noise to me now. It's just yeah. meerkats screaming <laughs> Nazi, 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 Nazi. Yes, yes, there are Nazis. We understand, yes. We can see them too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Wait, what's that, a snake? Oh, 